Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. In uh, part one of this series, we're talking about the grand star, uh, story, God's grand story, for this tool that I'm, I'm making, in the process of making. Hopefully I get it done before I die. But it, we began with the first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God. And then we moved from there to talk about meaning in life. Uh, why did he create us in the first place? And we talked about uh, God making us in his image. He said, let us. And we began to talk about the Trinity and how that all fits and the meaning and purpose in life. And from there we moved into the fall, man's fall and the evil that he introduced into the world when he fell. And today we're sort of following up on that piece last week as we go into Genesis chapter 3, and we talk about the judgment, and we're going to be asking the question or talking about what God is doing about evil now. And so let's bow for a word of prayer, and uh, then we're going to begin. Father, thank you so much for this uh, this wonderful time. Boy, this has been an exciting start. And uh, we just feel, sense a buzz from your Holy Spirit as we know that you continue to guide and direct us to take uh, obedience steps following you. You've done great things in and through this church and through every one of us. We praise you for it. Thank you for what you're teaching us through your word. And we ask you to give us attentive hearts and minds Cause us to lean in and to listen and to absorb uh, what you're saying so that we can uh, be further strengthened and edified, but not just for the general sake of being edified, but to become strong so that we can prepare to stand for the days that we face. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So last week we were talking about the entrance of evil, how, how, uh, how God allowed it, Satan uh, tempted to it, and man chose it. And then we talked about the essence of evil, that all sin uh, uh, hurts others, hurts ourselves as well, and uh, it also strips gods of the honor and the glory that are due him. And we saw how Mankind was responsible for this. Today, we're looking at what God is doing about evil in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 to 15. God responded to evil this way. He said to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the ground or of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Rebellion or sin ruined our relationship to the creation, and I wish we could say more about that, but uh, for, uh, the time just won't allow us. Ourselves, others, and God. The punishment was given in poetic form. Th th this is actually a number of poems that have been constructed and put together. When uh, God speaks in prose, that's the ordinary language that people use in speaking. He's communicating his thoughts from his mind to your mind. But when God speaks poetically, he's communicating his feelings from his heart to your heart and mine. In Genesis 3, the poems reveal God's angry emotions or the wrath of God uh, against sin. God felt so deeply that the Garden of Eden had been ruined, and he knew also where this would lead to. By chapter 4, the very next chapter, Adam and Eve's firstborn, Cain, murdered their secondborn, Abel. So what would God do about, Abel, uh, about evil? What was he going to do? We're going to see six key things, though we're not going to say a lot about all six. 
but I want to just touch on them. The first thing is that God doesn't remove evil now. By Genesis 6, mankind got so bad that God regretted making man and wiped out everyone but Noah and his family. But no sooner had they exited the ark and Noah is found in a drunken state and the cycle of sin began all over again. The truth is that to remove all evil, God would have to remove everyone. You say, well, my sins aren't that bad. I'm not that bad. Last week we saw that the sin or rebellion that Adam and Eve committed in the Garden of Eden wasn't something like rape or murder or kidnapping, torture, adultery, incest, molestation, enslavement, abandonment, divorce, theft, and so on. In other words, no one in the Garden got hurt. And we developed that. No one got hurt, and yet, as we discovered, everyone got hurt. Isn't that true? Sin passed on all men and women, mankind. And all because someone took one bite of a forbidden fruit. You see, there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't hurt others. There's no such thing. That's an invention of the culture. Did you know that some of history's monsters came from homes in which they experienced abandonment, neglect, or so-called absent fathers? So you'd have to remove that evil as well as it, as, because it contributed to greater evil. And those parents were acting like that in reaction to neglect or stuff done to them, so you'd have to remove that generation's acts, actions and neglect too. So if God removed all evil, he would have had to remove Fran and I too because, of our, because our sin contributed to evil in our own home. And our children are hardly angels, <laughs> especially Chris. And God would have to remove them too. And when we disobey, rebel, or rebel against God, it strips him of the glory due him. When the Israelites were complaining about lack of water, the Lord instructed Moses to speak to the rock and water would gush forth. Instead, Moses, in his anger and frustration, struck the rock before the people. Now, doesn't that, I mean, does that sound like a really big deal? Speak to the rock, hit the rock, what's the big deal? Do something to the rock. How bad is that? You didn't hurt anybody. But see what God's response was. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I gave them. Wow. Your sin and mine caused, caused the enemies of the Lord to show contempt for him. So the truth is that if God were to remove evil, he'd have to remove you too. And me too. Every generation would be removed till you get right back to Adam and Eve. So removing evil right now isn't the answer. Well, let's look at the second thing. God doesn't prevent evil now either. What if every time you gave $100 to feed the hungry, $200 appeared in your wallet? How many of you would like that? Or when I, I spoke, a, uh, or you'd speak a kind word to a weary supermarket checker, you received a Tim's gift card as a reward. Wouldn't that be nice? It just appeared in your wallet. Suppose that every time a man yelled at a child or looked at a woman lustfully, a painful shock jolted his head. <laughs> or when he lied, he got an instant toothache or was struck by lightning. <laughs> if we want all evil judged instantly, we're not thinking clearly. Were such rewards and punishments built into our lives, the world would certainly be more just, but at what cost? We would base our obedience on instant payoffs or the avoidance of instant pain, not on loving God. Our behavior might improve, but our hearts wouldn't, and we'd be right back to where we were last week. No choice means no love, and that means no relationship with God. And in heaven, there's going to be love. And we've talked about that many times, so I'm not going to go down that road. Here's the third thing. God restrains evil now. God outmaneuvered evil 
in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it says, after he drove the man from the garden, uh, from the garden, that's what it's talking about, after he drove him out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God banished them so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and thus live forever in the present fallen state. He had a plan to rescue them instead. Amen. It was his mercy and his grace that he, that he banished them. It was a judgment, yes, but ultimately for their good. Secondly, not only uh, does God, did God outmaneuver evil, God slowed the progress of evil. And he still does it. Arrogance reached a new height with the building of the Tower of Babel and, and, uh, because they wanted to make a name and create security apart from God in Genesis chapter 11. God examined the puny little tower. <laughs> a big God looking down at this thing. He could hardly see it, except that he can see everything. <laughs> and then he confused human languages to slow the progress of evil through mankind's arrogant ambitions. The third thing that God did and still does is that he set parameters on evil. Genesis 6, 6 says, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So he sent a torrential judgment that blotted out land and animals and people. God still restrains uh, evil when he sets parameters on evil today, preventing nations from going beyond prescribed limits. In Genesis 15, 16, it says, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In, in other words, God is measuring sin in individuals and in nations. He measures it. When it gets to a certain level, that's enough. He sets parameters on it. He, doesn't, he never allows it to get as evil as it could have been. You say, yeah, well, uh, Nazi Germany, it looks like he didn't really set parameters there. Yes, he did. Nazi Germany's goal was not to do what she accomplished. It was to go much further. She was going to enslave all of mankind. God said, that's enough. You can't go any further than this. When things go beyond a certain limit, God uses another nation or natural disasters or something as an, an instrument of judgment. In Jeremiah chapter 5, it says, O house of Israel, I am bringing a distant nation against you. With a sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust because you crossed the line. He may not resort to worldwide flood to cut out evil. In fact, he said he wouldn't. But he is still using smaller procedures to cut out the cancer of evil to limit its impact. So it doesn't completely destroy all of mankind. And the New Testament says that God is restraining evil today. It, it, it concurs, as we would expect. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul wrote, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Still holding it back. Evil in the world today would be much, much worse if God was not personally restraining evil himself. Fourth, God promises to rescue humans from evil. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15... And I, took, I, I left that out in our reading before because I knew I was coming to this promise later. <clears throat> it says, and I've broken it up so that you can follow some of the things that I'm going to say about it. So put on your thinking caps for this. I will put enmity between you. He's talking about the serpent there. And the serpent is Satan. And the woman. And between your, the serpent's offspring, and her, the woman's offspring or seed. He, uh, the, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, and you, serpent, shall bruise 
his, the seed of the woman's, heel. All right? This significant verse has been rightly called the proto-evangel, prototype. Uh, is, is a word that we're common with. It means an original model on which something is patterned. If you, if you make, you know, if you design a new automobile or a, an airplane, it, the first one is called the prototype. This is the proto-evangel or the prototype, the first announcement of the gospel in seed form. This verse in Genesis is the original declaration of the gospel in seed form, the good news that there would be a solution to man's sin and consequences. What God said about the seed of the woman constitutes the Bible in embryo form, the sum of all history and prophecy in a germ. God was promising already because he had already figured this all out in eternity past. He wasn't shocked or surprised that they fell. He knew all along. And he had it all, he had it all figured out. So he didn't have to go back to the drawing board on this one. He never does. This one simple verse has much to say. In fact, it gives us an overview of redemptive history. And by the way, we're now getting very close. Uh, the next time that I get to speak in uh, however many weeks or months, um, the rest of it, we're going to be talking about how he rescued mankind, what the plan was. Up till now, is just a short number of chapters. Three chapters, and the rest of the scriptures is about the rescue. Until you get to the final three chapters, and then you're into the hereafter, or life after. Not the hereafter, or not the afterlife. It's life after. This isn't real life. <laughs> we ain't seen nothing yet, right? But anyway, according to this verse, the instrument through whom the victory will rise springs from humanity. Notice what it says in C, her offspring. Her offspring, as well as the pronouns he and his, in D and E, are all in the singular, indicating that it is speaking of one person. That interesting. Watch very carefully. Not only that, but it is the masculine singular, meaning it has to be a male. Here is intimated the seed's virgin birth, for in C, it says, her seed. Normally, biblical genealogies run through the man, not the woman. Isn't it true? You know, the son of Adam, the son of Abram, the son of David, and on and on and on it goes. Here, it says seed of the woman. Uh-oh. Something has changed. There's a strong hint of his suffering. The serpent, Satan, E, will bruise his heel. We're told that the serpent, Satan, will be completely and once and for all defeated. He will crush, in D, your head. This male will crush, uh, that it's the seed of a woman, intimating virgin birth, though it's not stating exclusively. It's a hint. This is in germ form. This is prototype. This is the mother of all prophecies in Scripture. All prophecies in Scripture are come back to this one. Because that's what, the, what it's all about. All the rest of Scripture is about the rescue and God's plan to redeem mankind from evil. And we're told the serpents, Satan will be once and for all defeated. Of course, the New Testament presents Jesus as the one who overcomes Satan, or will overcome Satan. Some believe we get an insight as to how Eve understood this prophecy. It says in Genesis 4, the very next chapter, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Well, the underlined portion in that verse isn't actually in the Hebrew text. It really says... I have gotten a man, the Lord. It seems that she may have understood 
that this one who would save would be the Lord himself, Jehovah himself. Though misapplied to her firstborn Cain, it seems that Eve understood that the offspring was one person and that this person would be Jehovah. Old Testament passages like Isaiah 9, 6 and many, many others expand on this. And the New Testament declares this one who is both God and man to be none other than Jesus Christ. None other than who? Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2 it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he... Who is he referring to? Yeah, and if you go in the verses right preceding it, it becomes very, very clear. It tells, it tells you. He too shared in their humanity, so he was human, so that by his death he might destroy him that holds the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus was also God. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil's, or the devil's work. So we see he was a man... He was human, and he was, and he was God. Look what he did. In Colossians 2.15, Paul says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, that's the powers of the air, the principalities of the air, the demons, Satan, and his kingdom. He triumphed over them by the cross. That's partial fulfillment of Genesis 3, verse 15. He wasn't completely crushed there. His death, Jesus' death, freed us from the penalty of sin and the consequent eternal separation from God in death. But there is, praise God, a complete fulfillment still coming. Romans 16 says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What was Paul referring to? <laughs> He's referring to what the Apostle John said from the Isle of Patmos when he wrote this. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and the seed of the woman will have crushed his head completely. Amen? Amen. That's what the scriptures say. That's, a, that's wonderful news. Amen? Well, God, during this time that we're waiting for this good news to be finished, we are between the partial fulfillment and the complete fulfillment. God is still using evil for his own purposes. We live in that between stage. God's people suffer a great deal. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, Don't be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that, they were that we were destined for them. You know what the voice of martyrs says? Uh, 200,000 Christians are executed every year. That's more, there's been more Christians executed in this, this past century than the first 19 centuries put together. Millions more are imprisoned or enslaved. But we often don't understand why God is allowing suffering in our lives. We don't, we don't face that yet. Whether it be a physical defect, disease, abandonment, divorce, financial collapse, child abuse, and so on. And in the same suffering, Satan has one set of goals while God has another. Uh, people always say, well, this one is of God and this one is of Satan. Actually, they're often of both. It's just that one has the motivation to use it to destroy you, and the other one has the motivation to help you, Amen. to make you, to strengthen you as a believer. A messenger of Satan was sent, for example, to the apostle Paul to torment him, but God allowed it for a higher purpose to keep Paul from becoming conceited. Look in that one verse, you see it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says... To keep me from becoming conceited because of these uh, surpassingly great revelations there was given me. That is God's part in it. He allowed evil in, and suffering in Paul's life to help Paul. Would you agree? But there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Satan's 
motivation in all of this was not to help Paul, but to destroy Paul, torment him, do whatever to get him off his case. God has many higher purposes for allowing suffering in our lives, and oh, I wish we had time, but this would be a whole series in itself, seriously. And um, that we'll leave for Chris to do. One verse for 15 weeks. <laughs> God has many higher purposes for allowing suffering in our lives. Here's some to purge sin from our lives, to strengthen our commitment to Him, to force us to depend on His grace, bind us together with other believers, produce discernment, foster sensitivity, discipline our minds, impart wisdom, stretch our hope, cause us to know Christ better, make us long for truth, lead us to repentance, strengthen our character, and on and on it goes. God uses evil for all those things plus. Because I didn't even have Paul's conceit part in there to keep him from becoming conceited and getting reward. But even though we are aware of the reasons God allows us to suffer, we usually don't know the reason while we're going through the suffering. And that's what makes evil and suffering so difficult. If God allowed evil or suffering in your life and it came in a package that said to make you less conceited, you'd go, okay, I get it. But it never comes that way. It comes disguised. And uh, all you know is that it hurts, it's not fun, but you don't realize that there's a God who's doing something in your life. That usually only, that only comes to us later, or not at all, or not at all. Sometimes we don't even know. Sometimes He shows us some of them in this lifetime, and others we'll find out later. And sometimes. Uh, so God ha does it di in different ways. When God finally ta takes the microphone in Job, Job's final chapters, we might expect God to defend why he allowed Job to suffer as he did. Not so. You, you think he'd stand up there and say, Job, this is the reason I did it. And Job goes, ah, yeah, I get it. God didn't do that. And I'm really glad he didn't in this case because he showed us something much more spectacular. Because in the middle of the suffering, we don't actually know why we're suffering. But there's something that we need to know while we're suffering. Instead, God responded to Job with divine sarcasm. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? And Job sits up, well, I'm not sure. I guess I wasn't here. Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who marked off the dimensions of space? At least 28 billion light years and unceasingly expanding at 50 miles per second. God continues. Verse 21. Surely you know, for you were already born. He wasn't. You have lived so many years, Job. God's infinite. And here's little Job. Here's little you and me. What do we know? What do we know about all this? Can Job bring, a, uh, bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear constellation with its cubs? Verse 32, which is also called, by the way, Ursa Major with its big dipper. You know the big dipper? That's the first one we all learn to see in the sky, right? The night sky looked wondrous to Job, but he couldn't have imagined what we've known for only decades in the bowl of that same Big Dipper. The Hubble Space Telescope photographed in a tiny point, one twenty, a fraction, okay? One twenty-five thousand, okay? One twenty-five thousandth, the size of the bowl's area in that little spot that tiny, tiny fraction of a spot of the Big Dipper's bowl 
2,000 galaxies. Are you blown away? Huh? Anybody blown? That amounts to probably 40 million detectable galaxies in the bowl of the Big Dipper alone. Each galaxy averaging perhaps 100 million stars. Is this now getting out of hand? As well as untold planets. Billions and billions of worlds exist out there, and God made every one of them. Amen. And then he says to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? I, 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 I'm controlling all this. I made it, and I control this thing, and it's expanding as we speak, Job. And you're, going, and, and you're wondering if I know what I'm doing in your life? That puts perspective on it. God was simply revealing that we are very small and he is very big. And he knows what he's doing, whether or not we can understand it. We need to trust him. Because God reveals to us the reason for Job's suffering. We learn that just because we don't understand the reasons doesn't mean there aren't any. He, to us, he revealed what the issue was, but to Job, he didn't. And that gives us a picture, you know, he shows us the one side of the equation. He knows what he's doing. He's in control. This is amazing. How do you keep this all together? You think that I can't control what's in your little life? But then on this side, for our benefit, he says, here, I'll show you a reason. You go, oh my goodness. He's amazing. He's in control out there, and he's in control in here. He's in control everywhere. If God should eliminate any one evil that affects us, the result might be to permit ten other evils and permit and prevent ten good ones. I'm going to give you an example, something that I read. Some of you are going to like this. Some of you won't. Star Trek. <laughs> this episode depicts the 1930s America. Historically... Edith Keeler, a peace advocate and social reformer, was killed when hit by a car. That's evil and suffering, isn't it? Amen. The reason I'm doing this is because I want you to follow me through what, what I'm going to say now, because I, I want you to catch what I'm saying, okay? Not all of you are into Star Trek, so I want you to listen carefully. I'm not either, but this is a good one. But Dr. McCoy, in Star Trek thrown back in time, saves Edith Keeler. Saves her life. In other words, because she's going back in time, this woman who historically dies, he goes back in time and saves her so that she doesn't actually die. So she changes, he changes uh, what happened. So far with me? Okay, now follow me again. Keeler's peace movement flourishes now. Remember, she died, so the peace movement died with her. Now, because she saved, her peace movement flourishes, and it takes off. And America delays entering the war against Germany in World War II. So instead of going to war the way we know America did, she doesn't. Although this seems good, since war involves much suffering, catastrophe results. German scientists, as a result, invent the atomic bomb before the Allies do. The world falls under the control of the Nazis, and millions more, million more, millions more lives are lost than would have been had the one woman died. Did you follow what I said? So because he raised her back to life, peace movement now flourishes, changes history, America holds back, Germany wins, takes over the world, and more evil happens than if that one woman had died. Do you get it? So the apparent good of saving a noble woman's life instead brings terrible evil and suffering to the world. Now listen to this. Knowing this, Captain Kirk, he's a good man, right? 
Knowing this, Captain Kirk follows McCoy back in time to stop him from preventing her from being killed in the car crash. McCoy wants to solve that one evil of her getting killed in the car crash. Kirk, seeing what it's going to do in history, and we'd all be enslaved by Nazism, goes back and stops Dr. McCoy from doing it. Even though Kirk had fallen in love with the woman. You see? She dies, and the Allies win the war. Now, here's the moral of the story. Since detailed past, present, and future knowledge is unavailable to us as it is in this make-believe story, we sometimes consider accidents random and pointless. We do not see that God has and is always working out the greater good. And some of the things he allows, we go, that was pointless. I wonder why that happened. Know this, that that God who controls those billions, all those galaxies and those billions of planets and stars out there, that's the same God who's controlling the events on this one tiny little planet. And he's fully in control. What's happening is not pointless. Some good actions may result in great evils, while one tragic death may save the world from tyranny. Who but God is in, in a position to know such things? God sovereignly decrees and uses the suffering and death of his children. No suffering is pointless. I'm going to tell you a story of missionaries, David and Svi Flood. They and another a young couple, the Ericsons, and if you're Swedish, I'm sorry, I'm, butchering, I'm going to butcher names right about now. They felt God's leading in 1921 to take the gospel to a remote area in what is today's Zaire. It was Belgian Congo at the time. Dolera. Because the tribal chief wouldn't let them enter his village, they'd contact only with a young boy who sold them food. And the woman, the, the wife, Svia, led the boy to Jesus. Then malaria struck, and the Ericsons returned to the mission station. The floods remained alone near Dolera. Within days of giving birth to a little girl, Svia died. Stunned and disillusioned, her husband David dug a crude grave and buried his wife. Then he gave his baby girl, Ana, to the Ericsons and returned to Sweden, embittered, saying God had ruined his life. Within eight months, both, Eric, both the Ericsons died as well. Tragedy after tragedy. American missionaries brought Ana to the U.S. where she was adopted and became Aggie Hurst. Years later, a Swedish Christian magazine appeared in Aggie's mailbox. She didn't understand the words, but a photo inside shocked her. A grave with a white cross marked with a name she recognized, that of her mother, Svia Flood. A professor translated the article for, for Aggie, and I'll just take excerpts from it, but here it goes. Missionaries came to Dolera long ago. A white baby was born. The young mother died. One little African boy was led to Christ. The boy grew up and built a school in the village. Gradually, he won the students of that school to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the tribal chief became a Christian. And after decades of bitterness, one day, an old and ill David Flood had a visitor. His daughter, Anna Flood, now Aggie Hurst. She told David the story. She informed her father today there are 600 African people serving Christ because you and mother were faithful to God's call on your life. David felt stunned. His heart softened. He returned to God and weeks later he died. Aggie eventually met that African boy by then superintendent of the National, National Church in Zaire, an association of 110,000 baptized believers, all from that one little boy. The same God who sovereignly watches over and controls the thousands of, and thousands of galaxies and billions of stars and planets is also the one who is sovereignly keeping watch over and guiding your life. Amen. 
If you are a believer and in his hand, nothing is out of control in your life, no matter how bad it gets. And God will never waste your pain. He'll never waste your suffering. He'll never waste your hurt and your loss. Never. He's working all things for his good and yours. And he wants you to trust him. He knows what he's doing. It's always the best. Out of the tangled mess of your life, he's weaving a beautiful tapestry. So don't lose hope. Don't despair. Don't walk away. Persevere. Endure. It will soon be over. He will guide you safely home. Well, there's one more thing that God is doing or going to do. He will judge evil. Scriptures tell us that God will fully judge evil in the end. God says it will take place in a place called hell. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, the doctrine of hell is not some medieval invention used to frighten people into conversion. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. He's the one who said it. You can't repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. From the Bible, he spoke more about hell than anyone else. And he spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Without hell, justice would never overtake the unrepentant tyrants responsible for murdering millions. Perpetrators of evil throughout the ages would get away with murder and rape and torture and every kind of evil. And even if we may acknowledge hell as a necessary and just punishment for evildoers, isn't it true that we rarely see ourselves as worthy of hell? I mean, we're not like Potpol and the Khmer Rouge who slaughtered 1.5 of 7 million of their Cambodian countrymen or like in the infamous killing fields or the Bolshevik Stalin who purged 20 million, or Hitler responsible for maybe 30 million deaths. God responds, none is righteous, no, not one. Can you say, no, not one? No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Robert Lifton wrote the book Nazi Doctors, and in his book he coined the phrase, the normalcy of evil. Evil permeates the human condition. The Nazi doctors were respectable, respectable, educated people, loved their families, yet thought nothing of performing sadistic experiments on Jewish children. They considered themselves good people. We consider ourselves good people, but we're wrong. Guilty people can always rationalize sin. You always hear that with prisoners. I'm, I'm not guilty. They're all not guilty. Hell is morally good because a good God must punish evil. We hate evil precisely because we don't hate evil. Hate hell precisely because we don't hate evil. We cry out for true and lasting justice, then fault God for taking evil too seriously by administering eternal punishment. We can't have it both ways. It proves that we're not sincere. Our own mouths convict us of our rebellion against God. What we've done is proven that it's not God's ways that bother us so much as God himself. You don't want to be ruled by him, plain and simple. Thomas Nagel, professor at New York University, said, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That is the truth. God reveals himself, tries to get our attention through the light of nature, the scriptures, his son, the worldwide church, circumstances he allows in your life, reason and conscience and his spirit, and he warns us of a final judgment on sin and evil, and, and he pays the price of sin and evil for us. All this underscores God's extent, the, the extent of God's great love and patience. What else is he to finally do with rebellious people who refuse all of God's overtures? 
God, Jesus said, God prepared hell for the devil and his angels. It isn't simply a sentence that falls upon us. It's the inevitable destination we choose with every sin and every refusal to repent and turn to God's grace. Jesus said something else about hell, that it's forever. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Some regard hell as a divine overreaction to sin. But here's the key to understanding the appropriateness, appropriateness of eternal um, uh, hell. Here it is. Follow me now. Death forever seals or makes permanent our natures. Is it true? The believer is granted an eternal identity with the nature of Christ so that he or she will no longer sin again. Praise God. Hebrews 12 says, But you, believers, have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made what? Ha-ha. There it is. This identity is what allows us to enter heaven. But nothing more can be done for the unrepentant sinner who forever remains as he or she is. There's no longer a possibility of transformation. Yes, he will acknowledge God's existence, but so do the demons even now. They're shuddering, James 2 says. He will regret being punished, but that doesn't mean he will repent, nor will he cease to sin against God in thought and word and perhaps action, if that's possible in hell. Because his nature is unrepentant and that nature cannot change after death, he will continue sinning for all eternity. And so hell is eternal precisely because the sinful rebellion is eternal. Hell then would be a place where sinners go on sinning and receiving the just sentence for their sin, refusing, always refusing to bend the knee. Not only does it make sense, but we can quite easily see how it is true. When God will bring final judgments upon the earth, and we're getting closer and closer to that time, look at the reaction that many uh, of many to his judgments against them at that time. This is before the final judgment. These are the judgments on the earth leading up to it. In Revelation 9, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Try it again in chapter 16. It says, uh, They were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. In the end, God finally judges all who refuse to respond to his life. And he does so in a place called hell. And in this way, the world is rid of evil at last, either by rescue or judgment. Heaven or hell is the twofold response of God to evil. Why doesn't he do it right now, you ask? Second Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God, you are good. God, you are fair. God, you are just, and I praise you, and I love you, Father. Perhaps you're here today, you came as a visitor, or maybe you just stumbled in the doors, you're not quite sure what brought you here. Every one of us faces an eternal decision. What will you do with Christ? What will you do with Jesus, the man-God? who paid the price for your sin, the hell for you. He went through hell for you. But only by receiving that on your behalf 
only by believing that in your head, but returning from your sin and repenting of your deeds, your thoughts, and your actions, saying, Lord, save me. Can you escape that destiny? But to those who received him, he gave the power to become sons of God so that he can take more sons with him to heaven. That's what he wants for you. You say, well, what do I do? Then you need to trust him right now. Saying words in itself doesn't do anything, but if you mean it from your heart, if you're expressing your heart to him, he says he will forgive you of your sins. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Christ this morning. And so we're going to bow for prayer right now. I'm going to ask the congregation this time to follow me in a prayer asking the Lord to save those that do not know him. Dear God, thank you for bringing me here today. Thank you for the clear explanation from your word. Thank you that you are a fair God. You're a just God. You're a good God. You're a loving God. I have brought this pr trouble on myself. Evil is, comes from me, not you. But thank you that you love me enough by sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay my hell for me. I gladly and thankfully receive that payment. And I ask you to save me. I repent of my sins. And I turn to you. And ask you to be Lord of my life. Amen. If you're a Christian here and you're going through a difficult time right now. Of suffering. You have a decision on what you're going to do with it. Don't be like David. Become embittered and quit and walk away on God. Recognize that in His sovereign will, He has entrusted you with this suffering for a purpose that He will yet make revealed to you. Trust Him in it. He has your best in mind. He has your life in, your, in His hands. And he will carry it to fruition if you will cooperate and submit to him. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.